This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 29th, 2024. I'm Scott Blunderbone. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Happy Leap Day. Life can begin again in March, but today is just the bonus day. After this, I'm going to go watch the 30 Rock episode of Leap Day because... It's going to make a Leap Day Williams reference, but yeah. <laughs> if this is a dated reference by the time this comes out on Friday afternoon. Uh, also, we're referring to a show that went off the air like more than 10 years ago now. Don't worry, I got like uh, lots of Simpsons references and uh, Seinfeld that we could throw in later. Maybe we could even go back to some old classic South Park references. No, today- For the youngsters listening, you should definitely watch 30 Rock. It's so good. On today's show, it, we're going to talk federal politics. We have to catch up. We spent last week on BC politics. This week was relatively quiet provincially. There were a few- bills introduced, but they were largely inconsequential. Like they matter, but aren't controversial, at least. Federally, we have quite the opposite. Two major bills were introduced. So we're going to talk about them and some of the ongoing controversies that plague this government, (laughs) as happens when you spend too long as leader of a jurisdiction. Patreon.com slash politicos to help keep this podcast going. Let's begin in memoriam. The news this afternoon is that former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney has died at, what was it, age 84? So not too young, but uh, what, the average age of a U.S. presidential candidate these days? Maybe them by a year or two on that. Yeah. So uh, our thoughts are with his family today. Uh, he left an impact on this country, whether you loved him or hated him. He was. Yeah, definitely one of the uh, more consequential prime ministers, for sure. Because of him, we're free trading nation, um, kind of definitively won the uh, the argument on that. Um, was one of the uh, early leaders of um, you know major country coming out of apartheid. Did fairly significant work on acid rain reduction. Like, consequent, oh, the GST, consequential guy. Yeah. Uh, Also got involved in a wild, arguably money laundering scenario where he carried cash across the border that he didn't think was illegal and described Pierre Trudeau as a depraved bisexual. So lots of stuff, (laughs) lots of things happened in Canada's history with Brian Mulroney. Let's jump forward to the present. Uh, This week, we got two big bills from the Trudeau Liberals. The Bill 63 is the, oh my God, an act to enact the Online Harms Act to amend the Criminal Code, the Canadian Human Rights Act, and an act respecting the mandatory reporting of internet child pornography by persons who provide an internet service to make and to make consequential and related amendments to other acts. I believe the short forms of these titles. The Online Harms Act. Yes. And other stuff. It's not an omnibus bill because they don't do that. <laughs> it just happens it's to omnibus S. Yeah. So this is the long-awaited online harms measures that the Trudeau Liberals have been promising for a while. They said they were going to do it within a hundred days of being elected in 2021. Um, missed that deadline a little bit. There was a consultation on this a couple of years ago and that blew up in their face as people went the ideas you just pitched are like wildly stomping all over we actually introduced the bill that uh died on the order paper and never made so made any progress there were two things that happened they did a consultation on the online harms path and they had a bill on the second half of this bill which is the human rights code and criminal code changes that was a standalone bill that didn't, I don't think, did the online harm stuff that we see here. I think they had only consulted on that. 
and then they'd created an expert panel that no there was some more stuff beyond this in terms of um uh having tape down notices and a few other mm-hmm. things that was in legislation it was more consequential than just the last half of this bill and was pretty widely panned when it uh was first released this one's gotten better responses yeah and that's hardly uncontroversial yeah that's been really interesting to see so let's get into what the bill does first and then we can come back to the reaction so so it's a big bill that does a lot of things and i haven't read it all and i don't think many people have and those that have haven't had the time to process it but we can kind of go through the intro of the acts to figure out what it does so it's broken up into four, five parts, four of which are pretty substantial. The last one is just coordinating amendments, so we'll ignore that. The first part is the Online Harms Act. This is to promote online safety of people in Canada, uh, reduce the harms caused as a result of online content, and ensure operators of social media services uh, act transparently accountable according to the new duties that are being established. So. We're getting more bureaucracy here, Scott. We're getting so many things. We're getting the Digital Safety Commission of Canada. This is going to be the administrators and enforcers of the Online Harms Act. They will be the ones who make sure that social media platforms adhere to the new duties and standards they are being uh, held to and will act quickly to deal with harmful content as it is posted online. There's going to be a digital safety ombudsperson of Canada. That is going to be a person who, an office that will support users in respect to the act and advocate for the public interest. That person will be able to do research and report on harmful content online and figure out how we can better improve our online experience, which is pretty awful, let's be honest. And there'll be a digital safety office of Canada that supports both of those previous two uh, bodies to fulfill their mandates. The duties social media companies will have to observe, they will have a duty to act responsibly in respect to the services they operate by implementing measures to mitigate risks for users that will be exposed to harmful content. And they'll have to submit digital safety plans to the commission. There's going to be a duty to protect children in respect to the content that's online. There's going to be a duty to make content that sexually victimizes a child or re-victimizes a survivor and intimate content communicated without consent inaccessible to persons in Canada in certain circumstances. In other words, make sure that content online doesn't victimize children or uh, survivors of sexual assault. And there is going to be a duty to keep records to make sure you're doing all the other things. Uh, The Digital Safety Commission can do research. People uh, will be able to make complaints to the commission and the government can make regulations related to that. So there's a lot going on in that act. Uh, It's a very different approach than the previous one that we considered by the liberal government where it was a much more, they have to proactively take things down. This is much more a do your best uh, and respond to complaints as opposed to immediately take down anything that goes up that might be problematic, which feels much more reasonable. Definitely more reasonable. Oh, there's still a few concerns I've seen raised that um, the totality of it will lead uh, companies to be um, overly cautious, but I think probably strikes the right balance. Yeah, this is definitely one of those bills that's going to need a very robust committee hearing to debate it out because I don't think either of us are anywhere near the experts on these kind of issues to say if this is the right balance and there's going to be reasonable disagreements on all of that. But from the first blush, it seems like they are in a much better starting place with that Online Harms Act than we've previously seen. But there's more. Uh, Part two, the amends the criminal code uh, to do a whole bunch of new hate crime stuff. So they are creating a new hate crime offense that basically allows prosecutors to supercharge any other offense in the criminal code. If Not just the criminal code, it's any act under parliament. So, Mm. you know, if you um, violate the uh, National Parks Act, 
in a hateful manner. How is, you know, I'll leave it to the listener's imagination, but in theory, that would fall under this. This uh, notably has a sentence of up to life in prison for any of those hate, hate crime offenses. Now, it isn't so simple as they just charge you with a hate crime offense. There does have to, I believe, be attorney general sign off before it can go for that. But it is a much higher bar and a much higher possible prison sentence for hate motivated offenses. Uh, the second thing that gets even more controversial is a recognizance to keep the peace relating to hate propaganda and hate crime offenses. This, as I read it, allows someone who suspects someone else as about to do a hate crime to apply to the courts to say, hey, Joe over there is about to do some hate crimes. Can you, can you let, make him not? And if there is a sufficient evidence that he might do the hate crimes, they can put him under house arrest for up to a year and take other actions necessary to stop him from doing the hate crimes. Yeah, that seems crazy. And, you know, completely kind of inverts the uh, the order in which this stuff is supposed to operate and, you know, the uh, presumption of innocence and all of that. It's definitely among the more controversial of the changes they're making, probably the most. Uh, I know it one of the previous bills had imagined peace bonds as something people could apply for in a similar manner, and that was heavily criticized, especially by civil liberties groups. Um, uh, it also just seems like yeah. wildly inconsistent with kind of the government's general approaches to this. Like, this is a government that has been incredibly reluctant to make moves to just even just tighten up bail conditions uh, so that people can be jailed to have broken their bail conditions by committing more crimes. And yet now they're going for basically a pre-crime thing. It's this and the like life sentence stuff just feels weirdly contrasting with an otherwise general philosophy that seems to want to focus on lightning rather than hardening the criminal justice approach. It's pretty tough on hate crimes. Let's be real. Uh, the next part of the... Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is tough. Everything else this government has done has not been tough. So it's a weird contrast in that respect. They are putting a definition of hatred in the criminal code. And that is, as far as I can tell, based on Supreme Court precedents. So I've seen arguments that it shouldn't be written into the law because the courts have interpreted it. Um, it also makes sense to me that if you're going to use the word hate a bunch in the criminal code, that it's nice to have at least parliament's intent on what it means even and that intent should no, not be any looser than the supreme court so i'm not opposed to the definition there uh and like i said they're increasing the maximum sentences for hate propaganda offenses so not just the hate crimes but also the specific uh hate speech provisions of the criminal code ones which are very rarely used will have higher sentences now as well one that's specifically identified here is advocating genocide uh, gets uh, bumped up to a life imprisonment charge, which uh, seems kind of wild for a speech crime. Yeah. Just on the general grounds of, of that. Like, we're not talking about actually doing violence. We're talking about words and putting it conceptually on the same level as actual murder seems disproportionate in many ways. And yeah, I... <laughs> yeah, also, like, particularly in the modern context, like, to take an example that, um, you know, I think progressives would uh, see as not a good use of the law or an, or an overly broad one, you know, in theory, this would mean chanting from the river to the sea would be considered a thing that could get you life in prison, which... I am going to say is not something that I think would be widely endorsed by progressives. Yeah, like this is the one where I I don't disagree with you, right? I agree with what you're saying there. I am cognizant that neither of us are likely to ever be subject to hate crimes or hate speech. <laughs> and so I do want to like hold some space in my thoughts for like the, you know, the fear that many communities are facing these days. 
I I still struggle to think that that justifies, especially for speech, life in prison. Because I do like even personally believe in re- um, restorative justice is at least got to be tried. And life in prison is such a like life in prison being twenty five years just extreme. I don't know if anyone's ever been charged with advocating genocide in Canada. It is I know fairly it's, rare, but yeah, you know, still. It's, don't necessarily want to have you know a lo- a loaded gun so to speak uh just sitting there in the criminal code uh for that particularly during i think a period where there is a lot of very heated accusations going around from all corners towards well the other corner uh when it comes to this and yeah it doesn't seem like the ideal measured time where this is necessarily going to be taken in a a great way by a lot. Also, also, these increased sentences seem to make this section even more controversial than it should be. Like the approach to hate crimes and the recognizance is already going to raise a bunch of pushback. And now saying not only that, but life in prison, you're like, who was I don't know if anyone was asking for life in prison for hate speech. Yeah. And you know, attempted murder I don't think has as high a uh, sentence as this. So you know, actually going out and trying to kill someone yourself and but for whatever reason not failing to f- fully follow through on that and not succeeding in theory is less a lesser um harm than this like it just none of it makes any sense when contrasted with you know the broader criminal code the third part of this act is the amendments to the canada human rights act this is the restoring of what was section 13 up until oh it's gonna be section 13 again yeah i guess it they, they actually repealed i think in 2010 ish it was repealed uh, by the Harper government. 2013, 2011, 2013. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was repealed following a few high-profile cases where that section was being abused in ways that uh, pretty uncontroversially um, can be characterized as undermining reasonable free expression. I mean, professional asshat Ezra Levant got charged with it and decided instead of defending himself he would grandstand and make a mockery of it the thing he got that's sure. what happened <laughs> so j- just to put a little context in here um because ezra levant is yeah like an asset um the specific thing here was uh the was it 2000 i want to say it was 2006 um the danish newspaper that published some uh cartoons of prophet mohammed caused the big stir there was um international violence that came out of it anyway um the cartoons themselves were pretty meh bland um the the main offensive part was the depiction itself not anything necessarily in the cartoons um but like something that is for sure covered by free expression and also is newsworthy in the context of the subsequent reaction to the original publication. Like something that should, without a doubt, be fully allowed under the charter. Um, And yeah, so that, I think, was a pretty clear case of, you know, it being abused and used in a way that was attempting to undermine free speech. So he was charged under the Alberta Human Rights Commission, not the Canada Human Rights Act, because his d- cartoons were printed in print, which is therefore governed by the provincial human rights commissions. Like BC's Human Rights Code does still have a provision that prohibits uh, hate speech, uh, and it gets used every so often, very rarely. Uh, but every few years, there's a case. For example, uh, a Christian fundamentalist was calling a trans candidate in a previous election a pedophile, and that got, and, and doing so in a number of pamphlets he distributed, that got him um, a case before the BC Human Rights Code, um, and the Saskatchewan case, 
Human Rights Commission had had similar cases. But it became a broader issue because the Canadian Human Rights Act applies to online and telecommunication systems. So if you post it online, you could have your complaint brought there. And because of the controversies in the mid, in you know, the late 2000s, the 2010s, the Harper government repealed it and there was much rejoicing, although not much changed. Now they're going to bring it back and with some tweaks, as far as I can tell, the uh, bar is going to be slightly higher based on case law since then and the new definition that's going in the criminal code. Um, and there's going to be a cap of $20,000 on the payouts from this. Now, what's notable about the human rights code approach versus the criminal code is it's much easier to bring a case before the Human Rights Commission. Uh, the standard of evidence is lower. Um, there is still an attempt in that process right to, to cross-examine either, I believe, uh, was one of the issues. Yeah. I was going to say there's also an attempted mediation through the process. It really does try to force you to settle before it gets to a hearing and judgment. Because most of the cases the Human Rights Commission deal with are, oh, so-and-so discriminated me at work. And rather than try and set a big precedent, it's more about how can we solve this injustice if it if it was committed and yeah and those ones yeah are, don't uh potentially interfere with free expression so yeah are a lot less controversial and settlements make a lot more sense for i mean this one is going to be controversial the supreme court of canada has said that hate speech provisions of provincial human rights acts are constitutional and so Ultimately, I think this one is likely to be as well in the narrow ways it will be applied. That doesn't mean it's not going to be a big fight. Um, civil liberties associations oppose it, including the one I'm on the board of. But it's one that I think, you know, the liberals want to see brought in. And I suspect they can get the votes from the NDP and probably even the bloc to bring this through. Although, actually, I have no clue where the bloc will stand on. Yeah, you never know if the bloc. <laughs> The final part of this mega bill is to uh, amend the mandatory reporting of internet child pornography by just clarifying it and increasing some of the requirements there. And I think that's probably the least controversial because um, yes, well, there's, there's not this, a big what's the, pro child porn <laughs> lobby out there. No, it's one of these, you mean this needed to be added to the legislation? cases wasn't already in the law this way indeed uh so that's the bill as we've said a number of groups and commenters like michael geist and open media have already said that the online harm stuff in here is a big improvement over the previous versions there's still a lot of things they flagged geist for example flagged the powers of the commission need a lot of scrutiny. Um, but I think overall, the big issue that groups are already pulling out and you've already flagged it is mixing essentially two different issues. Like they're related. They all relate to harm and speech. Uh, but one is more like what's happening on social media. And then there's the like criminal code and human rights act stuff. Yeah. And this I think it would be a, a stronger and more um, universally acclaimed bill if it was just the first couple of sections and kind of left the other two out and just really focused on um, tackling um, uh, content that centralizes children uh, and blocking that as well as uh, the other um, like non-consensual um intimate images and that sort of thing and left the other two aside. But like you said, it, there's, I think the committee hearings will probably be quite interesting on this. I'm going to guess the Senate's really going to uh, pull its weight on a lot of this stuff as well. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. I mean, this government has not been great at moving more controversial bills through the legislative process. So they have... Oh yeah, over I, I, eighteen months until the, or they have about eighteen months until the election, and so clock is ticking. 
let's see how far this goes. I mean, I, I could see this, yeah, taking months on it and slowly working its way through. Yeah, it's... I mean, the liberals originally gave themselves 100 days after the uh, a previous election to get this stuff rolled out. It's now a lot longer than that. This does not seem to be something they've rushed to get to this stage on. And I don't get the sense this is something that's a top political priority for them. It's more kind of fulfilling the campaign promise. So, yeah. We'll see, but yeah, I, I don't expect they're going to be pulling out all the stops to push this through Parliament as quickly as possible. I don't know. I think this is an important bill for them. I do think this is something they've wanted to do, and now they've actually wanted to do right, at least on the online harm stuff. And that's why this yeah, has I mean, taken so long and why there was such back and forth over the consultations. Oh, yeah. Maybe. It uh, Geist did, does note in his piece that this feels like the first internet bill they've put out that uh, doesn't just feel like it's motivated by uh, interest group lobbying. So, yeah, that's a positive step, but I don't know. One thing I want to flag in the content of the bill that I skipped past when we were talking about the start. So it talks about harmful content, and it defines that in the definition as being one of a number of things. So some of these are quite obvious. Uh, intimate images, communi- intimate content communicated without consent. It's revenge porn and stuff like that. It's, no one's got a problem with criminalizing or no one's got an issue with making that. Um, no one's got an issue with putting that in here. Uh, content that sexually victimizes a child or re-victimizes a survivor. Similar content that induces a child to harm themselves. So that one... Uh, if I scroll up to what does that mean, uh, includes any content that advocates self-harm, disordered eating, or dying by suicide, or that counsels a person to commit or engage in any of those acts. Uh, so essentially, promoting eating disorders, I find that really interesting that that is included in there. I'm, I think, pretty pro that, but it's one where I could see... If you interpret that broadly, there's a lot of shitty content out there that promotes disordered eating. And Oh, yeah. Whole sections of Instagram and TikTok are just going to be blocked <laughs> just, out. Just Instagram. <laughs> uh, maybe my, maybe all, I understand. not all of it does it directly. <laughs> but they're, they're definitely like subcultures of the internet that uh, are really into that sort of thing and promoting it. And yeah, that's... Uh, they're definitely going to get whacked under that. Uh, content that is used to bully a child, which is any content or aggregate of content that given context in which it is communicated could cause serious harm to a child's physical or mental health. Uh, I think that's a pretty uncontroversial one, but could again in, be interpreted broadly. Uh, content that foments hatred is under here, and that hatred is defined uh, by their definition of Hatred, which means the expressed detestation or vilification of an individual or group of individuals on the basis of prohibited grounds of discrimination within the Human Rights Act. Uh, and I think they clarify in here. There is some language clarifying that it requires more than just expressing disdain. Yeah, it's not just you're offended kind of stuff. It's not right in the definition, so I don't have it in front of me, but there is a caveat in there. Uh, content that incites violence is also harmful content, uh, and content that incites violent extremism or terrorism is harmful. But that's another one where the devil is in the details. Uh, I do note that they say if you threaten the commission of, for a political, religious, or ideological purpose, an act of physical violence against another, that's violent extremism. So, It'll be interesting to see the experts really start to dig into all of these definitions and how well they're crafted because like no one wants we all we all know the very bad stuff and we all know the very benign stuff but there is a gray zone in the middle where it's like is someone's bad joke on twitter now going to be caught in here and should it be maybe uh but 
that's going to be where the meat of the discussion has to come. Um, so very interesting bill and so much going on in there that we will probably have to come back to it as it slowly winds its way through the legislative process. Anything else you want to say on online harm, Scott? Oh, the one thing I should say it doesn't do is require ID verification for porn sites. Yeah. There's, well, I mean, there's a Senate bill making its way through the House right now on that. Um, yeah, probably a good thing to be left off. Um, so far, that uh, Senate bill has uh, attracted the support of both the uh, Tories and the New Democrats. The Conservatives came out vocally in support of it last week and said if what? they form government, they will bring it in as law. The it NDP was less of a for it. Yeah, I think it was less like a full-throated, we're going to hold a press conference and come out with it more than uh, probably ever got a question at a scrum about it and supported it. But um, yeah, they, uh, they walked that back a bit quick. It's one of those tricky ones where, um, like, the ultimate policy goal is entirely fine. Of like, yeah, kids probably shouldn't be watching uh, porn. The um, issue, though, is it's one of those the devil's in the details. So it's no actually good way to get to that outcome. That isn't just going to cause a whole bunch of problems. And it's one of those kind of. You know, wicked policy problems that way. And yeah, rushing to uh, throw in some sort of ID verification is going to cause a whole host of problems. Like, are people. Well, and especially the way the bill, the Senate bill that's before Parliament right now is worded, it would apply to any site that might have adult content on it. So it's not just your porn hubs, it's possibly also your Reddits and Twitter. parts of Twitter. So, are people going to have to upload their photo ID to Reddit to access it? Because well, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, Reddit and Twitter are actually, I think, less problematic than making people upload it to like sketchy porn sites yeah. or anything. Or, um, well, like also, there's no way to do that in a way that's going to be able to maintain privacy on it and yeah it's it's a privacy nightmare and uh, there's no real way around that the other thing polyev did come out in terms of his response to this bill is that he disagreed with the regulatory approach and said instead he wanted to see a tough on crime approach to online safety and would rather there be criminal sanctions for harms against minors and other victims rather than merely regulating the social media platforms to reduce risk and remove content. Yeah, a lot of the stuff already is criminalized. The bigger problem is generally yeah. being like, it's it's tough to charge a lot of those. Um, I am unfortunately just blanking on the name. Um, the, the team from Novus. The Amanda yes. Todd case? Yeah, um, in that case, the... Uh, person doing it was from Europe and there's a whole international angle to it that was just very hard to to prosecute on. It's a it's one of those things where actually getting the evidence, getting the jurisdiction, like that that's the actual tough part. And this doesn't really do anything the bill here doesn't really solve those problems, but neither would ratcheting up or the uh, sentences or adding um, new crimes to the criminal code. Well, and like the only thing you could do is like make Facebook an accessory to the crime, which creates all kinds of additional headaches. Like I, I get the rhetoric he's going for, but it, it doesn't like you say, solve any of the problems. <laughs> So it was a weird response I found. He also, as far, like he probably has by now, but he hadn't initially uh, responded to the Human Rights Act amendments. Uh, he just said he doesn't think Trudeau should be regulating what people say on the internet, which, you know, is like thin platitudes. That's fine. <laughs> but 
It's a deeply unserious response, which I guess isn't that surprising. I don't see anything on the uh, human rights app portion of it. Well, the other big bill the government brought forward this week using the leap day bonus day today to get it in before the March 1st extended deadline that the NDP thanked them or gave them was the Pharmacare bill. Well, the Pharmacare Act is now before the House of Commons. Maybe Pharmacare in quotation marks at. There's two classes of drugs in here. It's hardly a all your prescriptions are now going to be covered for free. So this basically covers diabetes medications and contraceptives. It's something. It's it's hardly a uh, the big pharmacare thing the NDP had been pushing for. So it's I I see it a little different. I see it as it's two things. So it is definitely that right. It funds and tells the minister to go and make deals with the provinces to fund uh, prescription um, contraceptives and diabetes medicines. Uh, and provide for a universal single payer first dollar coverage of those drugs. First dollar coverage meaning uh, you and I don't pay a dime out of pocket. The government pays it all. So that that is the here's a thing that comes out today that makes this news. The deeper purpose and principles tells the minister to start working towards a universal pharmacare plan that will cover all drugs or at least all the drugs set out by the um, drug agency, the Canada drug agency that they previously set up. So this is still following within the plan that had been set up in terms of the supply and confidence agreement and some of the other language about how do we get to universal pharmacare? It was never going to be overnight. Um, Getting a couple drugs out the door early is a nice win so that, it doesn't feel like we'll never get it because an election could happen, will happen, and that could kill it. Uh, I mean, the, the li- but at least this starts them down the path, and it sets out the principles that mirror the Canada Health Act and reference them specifically. So, in terms of universality, accessibility, uh, portability, and that kind of thing. The liberals have already done a we're going to start the process on this universal thing in previous years like it's not that's not really a big new add on it like the, the only real new bit in here is the uh the diabetes and contraceptive medication which yeah, kind of thing rule for pharmacare overall on this hey now this does require the minister to establish within 30 days of royal assent a committee of experts to make recommendations on the operation and financing of a national universal single payer pharmacare. So we're going to get another report. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they've already after pu- put an expert panel together on this. Hence the, that stuff's already out there and not exactly new. All, all in all is, is this really feels like trying to eke out something that both parties can, can take away from this, but hardly the, uh, the win the NDP is uh, trumpeting on this. Or the liberals I mean, this was exactly what we were promised. I don't know what more people were expecting. I think they maybe pumped it up too much, but they had definitely said pass a pharmacare bill by this deadline. And I guess the language was probably being fought over whether to include the words universal single payer in there at all. And they're in there. So that's the win. But it wasn't going to be Pharmacare on March 1st. It was going to be a plan to do Pharmacare on March 1st. And here we have a plan to do a plan on Pharmacare, which it like the liberals have been talking about it for a while, but they've also been not doing it for even longer. So this moves it moves it forward a bit. It moves it up the field to where things have to start moving. So still like if you're the ndp it's obviously not job done you have to hold their feet to the fire and make this happen but not that you would necessarily know it from uh all the triumphal uh ndp press releases and social media posts on that they want 
credit for this, right? <laughs> They're the junior partner. Oh, I, I get they want credit. I'm just saying they are behind the government in the polls. And if they can be the one who owns this, if it becomes a thing and they can own dental and they can own all the good things Trudeau did. All I'm, I'm just saying that bad, this is. It'll be a miracle. <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, that meme about the, the guy celebrating and popping the champagne and everything. And then it zooms out and he's uh, standing in the third place on the podium. That's the NDP right now on the farmer care stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> There's, you know, they're in third. I mean, I guess technically they're the fourth place party, wins, so that would be a win. But yeah, there's a bit of dis- cognitive dissonance on that too. They can keep the government afloat for longer, uh, which they'll have to do because the Arrive Can scandal has like two more layers to it this week. First, the House debated an opposition day motion on monday and voted for it on tuesday i was randomly checking the house of commons website and saw that this vote was going through uh and it passed with pierre polyev's motion to ask the government to provide within like two and a half weeks a full accounting of the costs of the arrive can app because we haven't gotten that yet and to also recoup those costs from any contractors who didn't do any actual work within 100 days which is kind of fun. Yeah, both pretty reasonable asks, or in theory would be reasonable. But uh, as the uh, Auditor General noted, uh, the actual full accounting might not happen on account of there just not being records for a bunch of this stuff, which is, you know, super sketchy. But uh, yeah, as far as opposition day motions goes, you know, pretty solid one. Yeah, it's very detailed too. Uh I haven't looked at too many. I know I looked at one in the fall where the block was wanting to get prayers out of parliament. And I mostly followed that one for work stuff. But that one was more of a uh, fun one. Well, it is a non-binding motion, right? Um, Notably, only the liberals voted against it. So it was interesting to see the NDP and the block and the Greens all line up to say, no, we we should know how much things that we're spending cost which is a good day for representative democracy, I guess. A little bit disappointing the members of the governing party who aren't in cabinet, who have no clue what it cost, are fine not knowing. But that's party solidarity, so I don't fault them too much. Yeah, you can fault them a little. <laughs> it would be weird for the government members to vote for an opposition day motion. Regardless. In Canada, but- other Westminster democracies are a little more... Um- wild on that front um Poss- but speaking of wild that's this motion is not the uh the weirdest or most interesting part of the uh, stuff that came out this week no there's news this week that the department of national defense has let go one of its staff uh david yo after it turns out he is the ceo of dalian enterprises uh, which received $7.9 billion for working on the ArriveCAN app. And oh, sorry, he's been suspended from the Department of National Defense and DND had contracted the ArriveCAN app in part. So bad conflict there. Uh, also, like I, it, if a, some of the public service has time to run a major... Uh, government IT project off the side of his desk? Like, what is that saying about the actual workload of the public service? It, since it apparently just escaped notice that he was doing this while this was all going on. Uh, Press Progress also notes that Yeo was a People's Party candidate in Ottawa West Nepean in the 2021 election. Um, so he actively campaigned against vaccine passports while developing (laughs) one. (laughs) The PPC told Press Progress, given his actions, we would not welcome him back as a PPC (laughs) candidate in the future. (laughs) So he's been burned by the Department of National Defense and the People's Party. Uh, On the other hand, yes. According to Press Progress, was two people. Of course, because that's apparently how all of these... Contracts work. On the other hand, he's sitting 
pretty often uh, 7.9 million dollars of invoices so that's something yeah like i think there's no clear corruption to me here because while he was a dnd employee it was canada border service agency that con- contracted out most of the work on this app so it was cbsa who was fucking around and not yeah getting their paperwork clear like it's still problematic that he was, you know, moonlighting with this company and that he got this much money for who knows what he actually managed, but it's very weird. It's also very unclear what work his company did, as far as I can tell. Which really seems par for the course on this. Oh, he... I... I get the feeling it's not going to be the last shoe to drop on this. Like it's uh, notably also the Globe and Mail reported that the company he headed uh, presented itself as Indigenous owned and worked together with another company. He, he and does identify the two of them received four hundred million dollars. My understanding is he does identify as Indigenous. Okay. Um, in fact, um, some of the stuff that um, people found. Um, from the uh, People's Party run was a photo off with him and I think three other candidates touting uh, the People's Party's um, Indigenous candidates. But yeah, also uh, Indigenous it- Services Minister uh, Peihaiji announced they're going to be reviewing how the government awards contracts to Indigenous-owned businesses as a result of this. What a mess. Yeah, and it's... it's- like I said, I think there's probably more shoes to drop, and uh, no doubt the uh, the opposition party's going to be pushing on. Still, no sign of anything at the um, political level that suggests malfeasance. But um, a very there's enough smoke here that it's a surprise none of them spotted any fire. And you know they're not directly implicated. There is the just. Just what were you actually doing in terms of your your oversight responsibilities? Yeah, that's what it comes back to, right? Is the accountability in a democracy comes back to the elected officials at the end of the day. And you can point fingers at the civil service for failures across the board. But at some point, you know, as a voter, I can't fire the head of CBSA as much as I might want to, uh, but I can vote on who can do that and who can control uh you know the processes that oversee that agency so the political accountability needs to come back to the government and not just be passed off on staff uh and finally just a couple stories uh related to canada and ukraine we didn't remark on this, uh, but last week, uh, around the time we uh, heard it, or yeah, uh, pretty much last week marked the uh, two years since the uh, war in Ukraine started, or probably more accurately, this phase of the war in Ukraine, because it's been fighting since 2014. Um, so to mark the two-year anniversary, uh, Trudeau visited Ukraine as well as signed a uh, $3 billion security deal uh, along with Italy. Uh, This is to uh, provide a mixture of economic and military aid uh, to the country. Uh, CBC is reporting that this is for the current year, the uh, how much is committed over the 10 year lifetime of the agreements, a little unclear, Uh, but also reported by CBC a week ago is that uh, since we're at the two-year mark, uh, Canada still hasn't gotten around to signing the contracts to buy the artillery ammunition that we want to be uh, giving to Ukraine. Uh, and that this is still working its way through the government procurement process. Um, as we have drawn down our own stockpiles and Industry is now saying that there's probably going to be three years before they can even start the manufacturing of these very critical munitions. 
uh, on it, which just really contrasts between the we're going to very publicly go out and signal how much we support Ukraine, but not actually do the the hard work of actually making the shells Ukraine needs and get get them to them. And also, five years is wild when you consider contrast this to how we ha- managed World War II. Like this is basically a World War II level or uh, length of time to start producing shells. A, a pretty simple thing that you know, we've been uh, making for over a century. Seems like maybe we've made them overly complex. I don't know. There, there are like, some very complex build, 155 defend- GPS guided shells. Yeah, you. Tr- I mean. I'm sure Ukraine would happily take them, but you also can just use some unguided shells. That would go a long way. Yeah, I see in here Defense Minister Bill Blair is blaming some supply chain issues. Uh, We're struggling to find antimony, the mineral that you need for part of it. Uh, China's got a bunch, but we don't want to buy it from them for obvious reasons. there's, I guess, like you said, the 155 millimeter shells, there are research issues. Um, this is not a new caliber. Like, there should not be research. <laughs> my, my favorite, though, my favorite thing here is sources say the federal officials are skeptical. There won't be enough long-term demand to justify ramping up production. And the fun thing about weapons is the government is the demand. Uh, yeah, you can. So if they want there to be a market for it, they just have to buy it and shoot it. Um I, I hope there isn't enough demand, and I hope those federal officials are just optimistic we will one day live in a peace, more peaceful world. Um, consider the war in Ukraine's not seeming to slow down, and that there's um, potential conflict brewing in the uh, the Western Pacific. There's likely going to be a need to have significant stockpiles, or it would definitely be prudent to do so. So, yeah, like you said, this is something the uh, the government could absolutely do and just putting in some long-term contracts for this would go a long way towards that. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikov. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.